Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I am swell. I am so happy to be talking about movies with friends. Before we get started, just wanted to say a quick thank you to everyone who showed up for the Across the Movie Aisle live show at the Crystal City Alamo Drafthouse, uh, which is, by the way, just objectively speaking, one of the nicest movie theaters I think I've ever been in. It's like brand new and the seats are all real nice. It's got the little buttons to order, which we, we don't have at the draft houses here near me. You, you just put up the card. Anyway, uh, great food, great drinks, great crowd, and a fun movie in War Games. So uh, really had fun, fun time meeting people. It was nice to see folks or see them again or meet them for the first time. Very nice. Um, so thank you for everybody who showed up. Hopefully we will be able to do that again soon in the, uh, the, the future here. And now on to controversies and non-troversies. One thing that happens when you gain a little more expertise in a topic is that when you see a monocausal explanation for a phenomenon, you realize that it's almost certainly wrong. So in the case of Disney, for example, one phrase is often invoked to explain basically everything that's happening at the company right now. Go woke, go broke. People aren't showing up to the movies because the company went woke. Uh, the streaming service is shutting subscribers because they went woke. Traffic is down at Disney properties because they went woke, et cetera, et cetera. The problem with viewing everything through the lens of either Disney's fight with Ron DeSantis or Disney's like kind of comically diverse cinematic offerings like Strange World is that it obscures all the actual market forces in play here, right? So for instance, when Bob Iger canceled a planned development in Florida that removed thousands of potential jobs and billions of planned spending, Iger was happy to kind of let the press right and left spin this as a thumb in the eye of Ron DeSantis. But the truth is that Iger always hated the development. He thought his predecessor, Bob Chapek, was dumb to push for it and is desperately trying to cut billions of dollars from the bottom line. Or like, look at the Disney Plus subscriber numbers. The service has shed millions of users in each of the last couple quarters, and that's disastrous, right? Well, no, wrong. The users they lost were low revenue accounts in India that dropped Disney's hot star service because Disney decided not to spend billions on cricket rights. Subscriber numbers in North America have basically stabilized at Disney Plus, just as they have basically stabilized at the other mature streamer, Netflix. Or look at the box office on Disney's animated features, Lightyear and Strange World. This is like a key data point that people like to highlight when chanting, go woke, go broke. Look, I will grant that on the margins, there is a real issue that Disney has, uh, you know, kind of found itself in trouble with certain audiences by having same-sex relationships in, in the movies, whatever. The real issue, though, is that Disney itself has poisoned the well with audiences by emphasizing Disney Plus so heavily and pivoting so severely to streaming during the pandemic and its aftermath. Why would you spend a hundred bucks to take your family to the movie theater when the movie you're going to see will be on Disney Plus, which you pay for already anyway, in four to six weeks? It doesn't help that the movies themselves are bad. Like, they, they weren't very good. But the, the reasons uh, for what we are seeing go well beyond, you know, all the discussion about politics, right? The latest evidence that Disney is cutting costs in every conceivable way is the decision to jettison a bunch of streaming properties from Disney Plus and Hulu, which is a decision that is based almost entirely on saving the company license fees paid to distributors. Uh, the way streaming works is that the streamers pay these fees regardless of how many people watch the shows in question. So when a show is watched by nearly no one, it is just eating up revenue and providing zero benefit to subscribers. HBO Max has done something similar recently, right? They cut low watch titles and they sent some other ones to some other streaming services. Disney thinks they can save an easy nine figures, maybe even a billion dollars in costs while impacting nobody. So they do it. Alyssa, 
I wanted to have that whole preamble here because it is mildly frustrating as somebody who kind of has a foot in both of these worlds to see people insist, contrary to all of the actual facts on the ground, uh, that their political preferences are what drive every single business decision in Hollywood. Why is everyone so quick to project those ideas onto this world? I mean, I think because a lot of Americans are doing their politics through culture and cultural consumption now, right? And more broadly, I think people look at a story like the, you know, the general state of Disney and don't know very much about the entertainment business. And these are all sort of separate, complicated business stories that are coming together all at once. And if you haven't been reading the trades or even just, you know, good, solid mainstream business reporting, it's easier and more fun to jump on, you know, a monocausal explanation that fits your political priors and makes you feel politically satisfied than to bone up on the you know, very complex shifting business incentives, you know, in an in industry that both plays in these political spaces and that everyone has strong feelings about. And look, you know, I think Disney has made some mistakes, right? I think that they have made some really meta investments in a way that were weird. You know, I mean, the Star Wars hotel that they're shutting down was, you know, astonishingly pricey, had a sort of a real ceiling on the number of people who are going to be interested in that sort of experience. You know, they also have made political missteps, right? Like, I, I am not sure what the audience for Lightyear was. Um, and then sort of overselling an incredibly anodyne, not plot key LGBT relationship as, you know, some sort of milestone for the movie didn't win it any particular championship or, you know, like role of honor, a place in the role of honor of queer cinema. Um, but, it, you know, it was a way of... The company, you know, and the people promoting it telling certain audiences, like, this is a thing that, you know, because you're puritanical about, like, the very existence of gay people in society and are trying to delay that reckoning with your kids as long as possible, this movie is not for you. And so I think this is a combination of Disney legitimately screwing up in some areas, surfing a very tough business environment, being in this weird political fight with Ron DeSantis, who I think thought he had an incentive to make all of this stuff look political, although who knows if it's actually going to play out that way for him. And then people just being lazy about this complicated business story the way that people tend to be lazy about complicated business stories. The DeSantis uh, factor here is important and kind of interesting. And I do think that, look, I, I've said this before on the show, and some folks got annoyed with me, but the the initial response that Bob Chapek had to stay out of the big fight between Disney and, you know, the don't say gay laws and all that to say, we're going to do different things. We're not going to attack this head on because it will just make us the target of attacks and we will we will lose that fight was right. I think it's right and was born out. It's been born out in the polling. I mean, I, Disney has taken an, a reputational hit with GOP voters. You see it in the polls. That is not good for a family friendly brand. They don't they don't want to be taking sides on something like this. But at the same time, it creates a whole other set of weird incentives on Disney's side, right, Peter? Like, for instance, this this argument. I, I again, I think Bob Iger was very happy to just say, "Oh yeah, we're we're canceling this uh, project because of Ron DeSantis," and that's not really the case. 
Yeah, that's right. What these cuts do is is sort of cut against some prevailing arguments on uh, both sides of the political aisle right now. So uh, as you guys just talked about, like, on the one hand, it suggests that Disney's trouble isn't so much that it is producing woke movies. It's It has just a bunch of other uh, quite complex business factors that it, uh, and, and personality factors, right? As you mentioned, this was an Iger-Chapek dispute in which one executive thought that it was going to be great to move a bunch of people to Florida and then another executive succeeded him and was like, I always thought that plan was stupid. We're not going to do that. But also all of this is happening in a time of cost cutting. And if you look at this in, in the context of the cost cutting, you see what this is going to end up doing to production and to payments for production. And in particular, the high profile dispute at the moment is this is going to change compensation for writers, or at least this is going to, this signals coming changes for compensation for writers, because one of the writers for The Ankler and then who also writes a, sub, a separate Substack is a, a guy who goes by Entertainment Strategy Guy, um, does really deep dives into the business of Hollywood and streaming. And what he's been arguing is that what this shows is that the streamers and the studios are willing to take very aggressive steps to save money on shows, on streaming shows that actually cost them money. And the reason they cost money is because it, they have to keep paying to keep those shows in their libraries. It's not we buy the show and and it's done in most cases. There are continual fees that are paid out to producers and to the sort of to, to above the line talent, but also residuals that are paid to writers. And right now, writers are are attempting to negotiate for bigger streaming residuals. The argument here is that if they win that, what's going to happen is that studios will end up, of course, honoring the contract and paying bigger residuals for shows, but they're going to be investing in fewer shows, and they're going to not invest in the smaller shows that they know that don't pay off, because even though we don't have data on this stuff, they have a lot of data. And so, for among other things, he shows how some shows can simply cost a streamer money, um, often because they're weird, like, a, like the sci-fi show uh, Raised by Wolves, which is just a totally, like, bonkers, bizarre production. I really kind of liked it, but it was obviously not going to be the kind of thing that was going to reach a big audience. And I think the upshot of all of this, if you just sort of think about it in the context of, of uh, producers looking to decrease spend, of the negotiations with the writers, is writers are negotiating for something that is ultimately going to leave us with less product, probably with less unusual or weird product, which means that experiments and sort of stuff that is, might be more interesting are going to be less likely to be made. And it might even cost writers money in the long term if producers cut back on content spend accordingly uh, so that, yes, you're might, you might be making more money per show, but there is less money overall going out. And because there, we're in a, you know, sort of a uh, we are in a crunch environment in terms of studio and streaming spend. This is going to end up being the kind of response we should expect to see as studios look to to, to cut back on costs on streaming. Well, but don't you think that that era of austerity, you know, it's possible that the WGA negotiations, if they get higher streaming residuals, that will exacerbate sort of shrinkage in the industry. But look, like cash rules everything around me and the era of cheap cash for Hollywood and every other industry is over, right? So, you know, some of this was coming anyway because the margins were just 
bonkers and unsustainable. I agree with that completely. And there's there was no way that uh, that the next few years were going to happen without some sort of um, some sort of retrenchment on the part of producers and streamers under any payment regime. That said, if you make it more expensive at the margins to hire writers, then that is someplace where uh, producers and people, you know, on the money end of things are going to look to cut back even further and shows that might have made the, the cut just barely. You know, some of these weirder, more experimental shows are less likely to be made, and then the writers are not going to get paid for those. Or uh, writers who have already made things and might have uh, been paid for them under the current regime might not be paid for them if they're totally yanked off of the streaming networks. And in addition, it's also just a forget the payments issue. There is just an odd thing, I mean, that is happening here, which is some of the streaming shows that are being yanked are not shows that you can get any other way. So something like Willow, which was made for Disney+, Plus, now simply is inaccessible via any legal means. And I think that's not like a super friendly environment for creators, for people who worked on those shows, nor is it great for, for viewers who might want to catch up on that sort of thing. It mean, it, It's like, yes, there was never going to be a sequel to Willow because it didn't do so well, but it's now a world in which stuff is just getting disappeared again um, in a way that has not happened for, for quite a few years. Well, yeah, but isn't this also just a reversion to the historical mean, right? Like, I mean, the for most of the history of television, if a show was low-rated and not well-loved and not watched, it just disappeared. It disappeared forever. Like, it was, it was not in syndication. It was not on VHS or DVD. It just went away. Yeah, that's why I said it hasn't happened in a few years, but certainly that was the case in 1980 or 1990. That was the normal thing to happen. Well, and there, I mean, there are huge numbers of lost films from earlier in Hollywood, too. I mean, we our perception that we have access to everything is both ahistorical and inaccurate. At the same time, preservation has just become much more common. And uh, I mean, yeah. there's just, there is a lot. I, it's obviously the case that some things have been lost um, and that some things that kind of should be accessible just ran, aren't for a bunch for whatever reasons, usually like complex rights disputes that would be too hard to summarize on a show like this. But I do feel like access for most, certainly for a median viewer, um, especially a median viewer who doesn't live in a big city, is just obviously much better now than it was in 1995 or 1985. Yeah, of course. But I mean, I, I guess the question here is then wh how do you how do you square that circle, right? So if you have a situation in which uh, something that is not watched ends up disappearing forever, more or less, or at least gets moved to a different service that maybe has fewer subscribers or winds up on a, you know, a free ad supported streamer, which, uh, you know, is is what we saw happen with something like Westworld. How do you solve that problem? Because it's a, like if we want to live in this utopian ideal society where we have access to everything that ever gets produced forever in perpetuity, but you also create a situation where it costs too much money to keep those things on. What's the outcome here? How do you fix that? I can answer that very briefly. Um, I think the one answer is you don't, and the other answer is piracy solves that problem. And I, that's not a, an endorsement of piracy, but the way that you're going to be able to watch Willow in October of 2023, later this year, is that you're going to be able to pirate it. And that's going to be that, and it will be accessible to people who want to seek it out that way, and then no one will get paid for it. And it's not an ideal solution. Yeah, but that's it's a terrible solution. It's not, it, it screws the networks, it screws the, it screws the creators. I mean, I like I have no patience or sympathy for pirates and and their arguments. But when something like, I like said, this is not does an endorsement, where, but that is what is going to happen. 
Alyssa, let me, I'll, I'll direct this at you then. Why then should we not aim for something that I think the, the networks have been fairly hesitant or resistant to, and frankly, the writers probably are as well, but basing all of these payments actually on number of times watched, right? So if something is not watched, you don't get a big residual for it, but it at least it is on the thing, it is on the service forever, and people can watch it when they when they choose to. Or why not, you know, move back to a multiple revenue streams model where you can rent or buy individual episodes of things? I mean, I don't know how much, you know, how many individual episodes of shows or seasons of shows you guys bought in the early days when you can do that on iTunes, but I don't understand why you wouldn't do some sort of, you know, sort of direct buy episode by episode or season by season of this stuff through places like Amazon and iTunes where you can maintain a content library. Like that just seems obvious to me. There's still costs to that sort of hosting. And it seems like the Writers Guild is not is less interested in that because what they want is to somehow or another both get writers paid regardless of how much how often their show has been watched and not quite force, but expect the streamers to keep uh, paying for those shows even if they're not being watched. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, as I've said multiple times on this podcast, all sympathy and solidarity to the writers. But, you know, the economic environment in which all of this stuff has taken place is insane and unsustainable. And just to just to be clear, it's insane and unsustainable because the studios chased Wall Street dollars and just made a series of terrible decisions. Yeah. And, you know, the equilibrium is probably less stuff, more expensive. People who making it make it be somewhat less well compensated. And there are being less sort of weird, great experiments as acts of brand management. And that's a bummer in a lot of ways. But the bill was always going to come due for this particular, you know, sort of drinking binge by the studios. And, you know, everyone is ending up paying some of it. And it just, I mean, saying it sucks is, you know, sort of... <laughs> Not very insightful or deep, but the situation sucks, right? It's like this was a business model that worked well, that got blown up, and blown up it briefly in a way that seemed like it was going to work for everybody, and it is collapsing in a way that works for nobody. Yay. All right. Uh, so what do we think? Is it a controversy or a controversy? that everybody takes this extremely complicated, complex situation that we just got frustrated and threw our hands up and said it sucks about... Uh, and collapses it into, well, this is why my politics proves it's right. Alyssa. Uh, it's controversial. Peter. Well, it's business as usual. That's sort of how discourse and politics work and business. But it's a controversy. I don't know if it's a controversy or a controversy, but it's dumb and annoying, and I'm tired of it. I'm tired of people, uh, when, I, when I tweet something about this, hopping into my mentions and saying, ah, yes, but don't you understand that this is because of the wokeness? And I'm like it's not, it's, there's, there's a lot of other things going and maybe the wokeness is part of it. I don't know, man. I like, again, at the margins, but just stop, stop annoying me. That's, that's what's controversial. Annoying, sunny bunch. All right. Uh, make sure to swing by Disney, uh, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus for a bonus episode on how we destroyed the cable bundle only to rebuild it anew in a possibly worse form. Uh, now on to the main event. Fast. X. Should I call this Fast X or Fast 10? I need a ruling real quick. Peter. X. Fast X. Alyssa. Fast X. Fast X. 
Fast X, the latest installment in the interminable Fast and Furious franchise. Uh, the series of films began about a bunch of DVD players stealing hot rod racers and has mutated into something like James Bond for the himbo set. Uh, with a fetish for the phrase, it's all about family. It's about family, man. It's the family. That's, that's all we care about is family. It's the only series I can think of that kind of stumbled into its theme two-thirds of the way through the series run uh, and, and now uses that theme uh, as an excuse to stage increasingly implausible stunts that defy basic physics in a way that would make Marvel blush. Uh, so in this one, the villain, his name is Dante. He's played by Jason Momoa. And Dante is the son of the villain from Fast Five because family. He wants revenge on Dominic Toretto's team of thieves for killing his father. And we'll come back to Momoa in a minute. All you really need to know is that he's got a plan, and his plan involves bad things happening to our good heroes. Uh, the weirdest thing about this franchise, and I'm sorry, I'm not going to recount the plot. I'm not going to go plot point by plot point through this because it doesn't matter. And if you get hung up on it, you'll just go crazy. Um, the weirdest thing about this franchise is that it has evolved into about like five different movies all playing out at the same time because uh, there's so many huge stars in this picture that getting them all together in one place, I assume, would be nearly impossible. So Vin Diesel, who plays Dom Toretto, he's in one movie. Jason Statham's in another movie that intersects briefly with Tyrese Gibson and Ludacris's movie. John Cena is in a third, almost entirely, completely distinct movie that eventually intersects with Vin Diesel's. Charlize Theron and uh, Michelle Rodriguez are in a fourth film that mostly takes place in an underground prison that's in Antarctica. And Brie Larson shows up randomly three or four times to participate in some shootouts. She just shows up with a gun and she's like, I'm gonna shoot some folks. I don't particularly care about this movie as a movie. It's dumb and it's bad, just as nearly all the movies in this franchise have been dumb and bad. Um, but I am kind of fascinated by how it just works logistically. Like, how many days did they actually have John Cena on set? Was, was there ever a moment when all the actors were in the same room together? How did they juggle the schedules? Were any of these sets actually real? Or is literally everything we see just a series of blue screens? Anyway, there is one interesting thing in this movie. There's one interesting thing in this movie, and it's Jason Momoa's performance as Dante, which I can only describe as, and I'm stealing this from John Pod Hortz, but it's like Rip Taylor playing the Joker. That's what his whole affect is. There's like some Johnny Depp Jack Sparrow there as well. And like, there are bits where he's playing like a real menacing serial killer darkness to some of the sequences. Like when, for instance, Dante paints the toes of a pair of corpses in the midst of rigor mortis and their eyes are wide open and they've got flies crawling on them. Like, I feel like they were going for a weekend at Bernie's riff here, but it actually calls to mind Lars von Trier's horribly disturbing picture of the house that Jack built. I think there's an almost identical sequence in that movie. It's very weird. Um, anyway, it is, it is the whole thing. The whole thing is frankly a very bizarre piece of actorly work, one that is so nuts. I just, I honestly cannot think of a similar antecedent in recent history. The, the critic Manny Farber once wrote um, of the distinction between elephant art, which is like, you know, bloated, pretentious European art house type movies, and termite art in which an actor or director burrows into a subject. And I don't know if what Momoa is doing here counts quite as termite art, but it is genuinely weird and subversive and interesting. I don't know that it makes up for the rest of the movie being terrible. Um, the movie is bad, and Momoa is probably bad in it as well, but at least he's kind of interesting to watch, which I, I, you can't say for anything else in this picture. Peter, what did you make of Fast X? 
So as someone who actually likes the Fast and Furious franchise and is a fan of what Justin Lin in particular has done with this franchise and reinventing it sort of in the middle of a what is now a 10 or 11 film sequence, if you count uh, Hobbs and Shaw, I did not like this movie. And I, I liked it even less the more I thought about it. So when the Fast and the Furious fr franchise is good, it's light on its feet. It's fun. It's unpretentious. It's kind of charming. It's not exactly unironic, but it's earnest and it's not super knowing. It's not like in on the joke of what it is, because at every point you might sort of it might like suddenly just say, yes, we understand this is all just a joke. It just like it does the effect of, you know, sort of almost looking directly at the camera and looking right out at the audience and saying, oh, no, this is deadly serious right because it's all about like bro feelings and biceps and and like the importance of cars and corona and there's just a a kind of a a pleasant i don't know like almost non-threatening uh decency as well as a kind of as a wit to the action sequences and that combination can make these films not maybe good but quite fun and i would uh, i would identify episodes five six and nine as the as the best all of which were um directed by uh by justin lynn and this movie is unforgivably not fun the only time it approaches fun is when jason momoa is on jason momoa and jo uh, john cena are on screen but John Cena just is in some other movie that I might have liked better if it were the whole movie. It's just a weird comic kid side adventure that happens to end up with, uh, you know, it sort of play a, a small part in the finale of this film. And Jason Momoa, first of all, he also is kind of in his own movie because, like, look at how rarely he's on screen with any of the other big actors. He's it's almost always just acting in front of a green screen, kind of showing off and doing his weird thing, but not acting with or against anyone. He's just delivering lines in his kooky, crazy way. And it's just sort of unpleasant and loud and obnoxious and knowingly campy. It has decided to become in on the joke with the audience in a way that doesn't work, in a way that destroys the undermines the fun of it and then you combine that with the fact that the action sequences are just noisy and ugly and not very memorable i guess there's some weird thing with a rolling ball that happens in rome but i couldn't even tell you what the big beats are there except there's a ball that rolls down a hill and at the end they save the vatican it explodes in the water i don't like the the best of these movies you can remember key moments you can describe these very specific sort of big like holy crap i've never seen that before on screen that was ridiculous and enjoyable and here it's just like oh this is loud and it's aggressive and unpleasant and it just kind of it it fails the fun test in a way that it really shouldn't and that is somewhat disappointing. Peter, I'm sorry, you didn't think it uh, it had embraced its own silliness and devolved into campiness when they went into space, when they, when they shot a car into space in F9? When they jumped a car between towers of a luxury building in Dubai? Or they chased they chased a submarine on the ice? In F8? The submarine thing was very silly, and I think F8 is the worst of the franchise up until this one. A non-Justin Lin film, and also um, one of the uglier entries in this. Those movies were silly, and you sort of veered into a kind of a camp. But this movie is, does something different in tone 
that is more knowing, more ugly, less fun, and less less earnest about its characters and their very simple bicep-related feelings. Alyssa, what did you make of Momoa in this movie? Because again, I like I'm I I can't really be bothered with the rest of it, but I do find what he is doing there to be like weird and unpleasant, but also interesting. So I am um, probably the one of us who likes these movies the best. And if you if you would like an extended treatment of my feelings about the franchise, you can listen to the episode of the podcast Too Fast Too Forever um, that I guessed on a couple years ago at this point. And I'm also the one of us who is probably the most, has spent the most time thinking about sort of the history of queer cinema. Um, I don't know if either of you have read Vito Russo's The Celluloid Closet, which is sort of a history of, like the secret gay history of Hollywood, basically. So I guess that positions me to say the thing that neither of you two have said about Momo's performance, which is like how feminine queer it is, right? Like that's the thing that's really interesting about it. Like he's playing this incredibly violent, you know, sort of psychotic supervillain who is like putting his hair up in scrunchies and wearing like is very into his nail polish and his accessories and like spends a certain amount of the movie like swanning around in like purple silk, right? I mean, those pants did look very comfortable. It looks I, I think that's I think that's the implication when you describe him as Rip Taylor's Joker. But yes, sure. But like, I mean, he is playing this as like and if he is playing a, you know, femme high camp villain. And interestingly, like the Fast and Furious movies are in some ways like an alternate vision of what like queer inclusion in Hollywood could look like, right? I mean, you have Michelle Rodriguez, who is gay, playing the main love interest in the movie as a character who is, you know, sort of notoriously unglammed up, right? I mean, you, you know, you have the one sequence where she's like, you see her dolled up for her wedding and for, you know, in that like red dress in a fight sequence with, I think, Ronda Rousey. Um in five, I believe that is. But, you know, she's a character who is, you know, she's a, like a queer woman playing a straight character who gets to be like the hot love interest, despite being sort of notably glammed down. And to throw a, just like a sort of camp throwback like this into the mix is really interesting. I don't necessarily think it's good or that it like works tonally with the movie, but it is fascinating to see a franchise of this magnitude, especially one that plays really big in China, which is not particularly LGBT friendly, lean into this. And to a certain extent, I think at the initiative of Momo himself, I mean, in the interviews that the director is given about the movie, he's kind of like, yeah, Jason just got really into it. <laughs> um, and it's a so, choice. Yeah, it's right. It's like, choice. it's interesting to have this movie where it's like a, you know, like, hunky leading man who's like Khal Drogo and Aquaman can be like, I just want to like be a femme supervillain where, you know, a gay actress can play a straight character without having to affect sort of like the signifiers of Hollywood's cis woman hotness. Um, and, you know, the franchise never sort of sells itself that way, right? Michelle um, Rodriguez never talks about herself in sort of those terms in the movie. And so it's sort of a vision of Hollywood that's incredibly inclusive without talking about its first, um, without, you know, creating like a gay role for a gay actor to play instead of, you know, letting a gay actor play a straight role. It's just, it's interestingly unselfconscious 
in its inclusiveness in a way that I think is successful and useful and important, even when the movies are sometimes kind of garbage, which I think this one is. So thinking about that just a little bit more, I I, I just want to throw in one thing really quick here. The director of this movie is Louis Leterrier, who also made the first two Transporter films. And the first two Transporter films are like kind of legendarily gay action movies, not in the sense that they are like really overtly gay, but there is a scene in which um, the uh, Jason Statham transporter lead character uh, talks like says, oh, I'm not interested in you, ma'am, because of who I am. That has been explicitly confirmed by Leterrier, among other people, as the moment where he comes out. Leterrier um, said that uh, Statham's character in the transporter films was the first gay action hero. I don't know if that's actually true, but like that was how he saw them. And I do wonder if there's that's a that's something of Leterrier's influence coming through here, given that he embedded a bunch of that in the last time he made a big car action franchise. Alyssa, one thing I, I, I'm curious to get your perspective on after that is I, I feel like if this movie had come out in the 90s, it would have been protested by Glad as a hate crime. Like, yeah, I, like it, you know, in the in, in the in the in the in the same way that, you know, uh, Basic Instinct came under fire or Silence of the Lambs came under fire. I feel like I can't tell if it's a sign of progress or what, but like again, the way I described the way I described Momoa on Letterbox was as as gay Joker. I mean, he's he's playing this this role as like gay Joker, and like it's it's very interesting to me to to kind of sit back and look look at the state of Hollywood and be like, I feel like thirty years ago this would have been much more controversial than it is now somehow when we're more aware of all this stuff. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, I would describe him as sort of as queer Joker more explicitly, um, just because his character is not sexual, right? And like the thing that is transgressive about him is his gender presentation, not sort of necessarily any explicit, you know, sexual contact with he has with anyone. And I had the same thought. I mean, walking out of the movie, I said, Peter, I was like, I'm sort of excited to see the discourse about this one. <laughs> um, like, I would read I would read an Andrea Long Chu essay on this performance is what I'm saying. Um, but I think it, you know, I think it's a good thing just in the sense that like there are so many images of, you know, LGBT men and women that this one no longer feels defining, right? And it doesn't feel like the fact that his motivation is sort of explicitly non-sexual, right? It's like it's, you know, I, it's the same sort of, like, manly, like, I'm going to avenge my father, family, blah, blah, blah. The source of his villainousness is explicitly separated from the queerness and campness of his persona, right? Like, he's not, like, this is not some, like, repressed love he has for Dom. It's not some, like, you know, he's, like, breaking up his family, but not because, like, the nuclear family is evil and, like, you know, cis heteros must be destroyed, but because it's, like— you killed my dad. And so I think it is different from the performances of, you know, the 90s that you were talking about, right? The, like, Buffalo Bill is, like, trying to build himself a woman's suit. Like, the source of his criminality is, like, that character's transness, right? But I also think there's just, like, there's just a variety of these roles and images now, even if some of them are, like, sort of dumb, anodyne, disney box-checking nonsense, that something like this can exist without being threatening, you know, and the political environment while, like, I mean, look, I 
would not want to be a, you know, a tra trans or queer kid in Texas or Florida these days. Um, there's a lot of really, really ugly legislation getting pushed and passed. Um, but the political environment, you know, there at least is like nationalized level pushback to that, right? It is not, the culture is not so monolithically negative about queer people. And so something like this can exist and just be a weird experiment without it being sort of definitive or the only queer character that people are going to get to see on screen, maybe even in a big movie this year. You know, I mean, Pedro Pascal, who is, you know, like this, having this huge moment is like playing a gay cowboy in a movie with Ethan Hawke that's at Cannes. Um, and so there's just more space and room to breathe in the culture. And so something like this can be a weirdo artifact instead of, you know, a cause for despair. And I think that's probably a healthy thing. All right. So what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Fast X? Peter. Sadly, a thumbs down. I was really hoping to like this. Alyssa. Same. A disappointment. Uh, it's definitely a thumbs down. It's a bad movie, you know, but... Again, I kind of hate all these movies, so I'm not. I'm probably not the, the person to, uh, to ask. All right, that is it for this week's show. Make sure to head over to Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday. Make sure to tell your friends a strong recommendation from a friend. It's basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. 